we must admit that we do not have the situation under control. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. Welcome to the world we want. Youth voices on climate and health. My name is Jonathan Foster. And in this second series, we continue meeting some of the world's most engaging and thought-provoking youth activists. We get their views not only on the reality of our current environmental and health crisis, but also about the possibilities, alternatives and ideas for transformation and change. We find out what youth activists are thinking and doing, and we find out what you can do to help build the world we want. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time. Hello. In this first episode of Series 2, I'm going to introduce a hero. Now, these days, we're encouraged to believe that our heroes should come in the shape of a Hollywood-style, self-important, self-promoting Superman, with one eye on some impossible goal and the other in the mirror. We're told that our heroes should be billionaires or innovation experts or heads of global organisations, but these are only heroes in a poorly told story. In reality, true heroes come reluctantly into the spotlight. True heroes don't shout instructions from some distant protected bunker. Instead, they come with dignity, with humility, and they respect others for their existence, not for their utility. Our true heroes talk of collective accomplishments and collective well-being. And sometimes, true heroes come in the form of a steely, determined and hard-working young woman from Egypt, like Omnia El Omrani. Omnia's list of accomplishments is very extensive. She's a plastic surgery resident at Ain Shams University Hospital, a member of the Youth Sounding Board of the European Commission, a commissioner at the Lancet Chatham House Commission on Post-Covid Planetary Health, and she's just taken up the role as the first ever President Envoy on Youth for the upcoming COP27. Now, in a kind of poetic irony, we discussed planetary and personal health as Omnia stood in polluting traffic in downtown Cairo, and I'm suffering from a cold. <laughs> I've removed most of the sound of the traffic from the podcast, but unfortunately, in real life, it's still there. I started by asking Omnia to introduce herself. Uh, yes, sure. So I'm Omnia Lamroni. I am the uh, currently the first ever uh, youth envoy for the COP uh, president uh, of the UN Climate Change Conference that is taking place in Egypt. And I'm also a plastic and uh, reconstructive surgery resident um, doing my second year in Ayn Jans University in Cairo, Egypt. What about you personally, Omnia? I mean, that's a description of your job. But how would you describe yourself as a person? Um, I would say I'm a climate health 
activist. <laughs> That's just another description of your job, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's also you know taking my personal life away. So I don't know what's the difference now between them. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been appointed in this brand new role uh, as youth envoy to the president of COP27. Could you tell me a little bit about what's expected in this role? Yes. So my role as a, as a youth envoy for the co-president is to be the link between the needs, asks, and uh, uh, grassroots work that is led by young climate activists and uh, leaders and experts uh, with the uh, COP president and the presidency's work, as well as in the lead up to COP and following afterwards to the next youth envoy that will be for COP28 in UAE. So you just mentioned that you're a liaison between grassroots activists and the COP, COP27. Could you tell me about how you work and what some of these young activists are actually doing to make a difference? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I work on three different levels. The first is with the Egyptian youth. The second is with the youth in Africa. And finally, global youth advocates around the world. Um, and as young people, we also work on our own level. So either we are activists and advocates within our own community, or we are more on the entrepreneurial and solution-making level. So an example of what solution-making means, uh, there are young people, for example, in Egypt, uh, one of them create uh, local, um, reliable and affordable solutions to save water, uh, to protect against crop failure, or to use solar uh, panels that are affordable, either to heat the water that they need or provide the electricity needs for small houses. Uh, but then on, a, on the level of Africa, I know many African youths who, one of them developed drought-resistant seedlings to address food insecurity. There are also other young people that work on creating uh, greenhouses on roofs of vulnerable cities uh, across of Africa. Um, but then on the other side of advocacy and activism, many young uh, leaders are creating their own capacity building workshops and sessions. For example, a group of... Uh, I'm going to jump in here just for a moment. Egypt, because uh, in her work, Omnia sees hundreds of incredible youth-led initiatives. In fact, in all of our episodes, we've heard time and time again about all kinds of creative and innovative solutions coming from youth activists designed to cope with human-induced climate breakdown. Now, of course, this is fantastic. We need coping mechanisms. But what about the shared values and principles that are driving climate breakdown in the first place? I asked Omnia, how are young people addressing the fundamental values and principles that are the root causes of our climate and health emergency? Uh, yes, one of the key values that we as young people are addressing and advocating for is not a, just climate action or ambition, but climate justice, uh, especially for countries and communities that are suffering the most, but then they have the least funding and resources. Young climate activists are also suffering from injustices in relation to having access to funds to scale up or to even do their own local initiatives. Um, and this brings into 
us to the broader picture of inequity intergenerational wise because again we're doing all of these grassroots activism and solutions but we are not yet at the decision making spaces to drive a bigger impact within government and country positions, especially at the climate negotiation space where there is still a lack of political will, inadequate commitments, lack of translating such commitments into implementation mechanisms, lack of mobilizing climate finance, especially for adaptation where we see more funds being put into mitigation and clean energy because it's a good business model but there is not yet a good business model for adaptation, for example, even though this is what countries need most when it comes to funding. And that is why we refer to this COP as the implementation COP, because it is the only window that we have right now as young people, as well as governments in the different sectors, including the private sector and the civil society, to push for the implementation of the commitments that were already submitted in 2020. But at the same time, do good because next year we're going to assess our progress towards the Paris target and so far we're not there yet and we need to push for that this COP this year. In addition that this COP is happening in Africa which is the first time in six years which we want to bring in as the presidency the importance of adaptation loss and damage at the forefront of the negotiation process. So young people are advocating for more climate justice, as you've just said, and demanding more power in decision-making spaces, you know, to, in order to address the lack of commitment shown by governments around the world. But I just want to ask you about that. I mean, you and I spoke on the first episode of The World We Want, just before COP26, and we talked a lot then about how important COP26 was for creating really ambitious climate plans. And now, it's a year later, and you're heading to COP27. So how should we deal with those countries who have failed to prioritize and commit properly to their promises? How do we hold them accountable and change this lack of commitment? Um, I think that the key to um, tackling such lack of commitments is two things. The first is using the science and using the evidence because the science is on our side when it comes to the need to scale up our commitments. And then the second tool that we have is our voice and our advocacy because at COP, as young people, we're going to voice the needs of our communities and the people that we work with, especially the younger generation who are feeling anxious and distressed most because of how climate change is disproportionately impacting them. The extreme weather events that we are seeing now, a child who is born in 2020 is going to see eight times the rate of extreme weather events driven by climate change. And right now, more than 50 million children and youth are displaced because of climate-related events. So all these different numbers are necessary to drive urgency and at the same time, utilizing our voices and our specific policy asks that will be the countries to adopt is another important tool we are using. I mean, that sounds fantastic, Omnia. Uh, strong evidence backed by a strong youth activist voice to drive urgency and create change. Um, but let me just push back on that for a moment. Uh, it seems so compelling, uh, this idea 
that if people properly understood the situation we're in, they would inevitably take the right course of action, you know. But there is an enormous amount of evidence all around us. And yet there seems to be a lack of real urgency within the corridors of power, this lack of political will you were talking about earlier. The response to the climate and health emergency is just too slow. So my question is, what is it that you think is getting in the way of proper global change in this respect? Um, I think it's, we know it because we work, for example, in the health space, which is very much evidence-based. And at the same time, in the youth space, there are many young researchers and academia, as well as civil society organizations. But I think the gap is how can you translate the the very technical and detailed scientific evidence evidence into policy asks that can be implemented by countries and policy asks that also have their own return on investment or economical case so that countries can adopt it. Um, and also the understanding of the concept of common but differentiated responsibilities, which means that all countries have a common goal, which is the Paris goal to reduce or to prevent the increase of the temperature to 1.5. But we need, each country has its own limitations when it comes to reaching that goal. And how can countries all together come to such terms with the realization that there is an urgency to do that, especially in the negotiating rooms? And with that, Omnia has revealed a challenge. How do we translate the very technical and detailed scientific evidence into policy that can be implemented by countries around the world? Now, in a moment, we're going to continue talking about storytelling and the relationship between planetary health and human health. But first, the Prince Mahadon Award Conference will be held on the 24th to the 29th of January 2023 in Bangkok, Thailand. The conference sessions will address a variety of themes, including the very ideas that Omnia has just been talking about. Climate injustice, climate communication, political and social movements, multi-sectorial policy and practices, and youth-led sessions. Now here, on The World We Want, Youth Voices on Climate and Health, I'll be digging into some of these themes and more over the next few episodes. So don't forget to subscribe on your podcast provider. Now right now, we're facing a triple planetary crisis. The climate emergency, biodiversity loss and pollution. We need to set a new health agenda. In a recent study of 10,000 16 to 25 year olds, 45% of respondents said that climate anxiety is impairing their daily functioning. Concentration, eating, going to school, going to work, playing, socialising. They say they're suffering from sadness, from fear, from guilt, a feeling of lack of power and increased panic. 45% of respondents. Now that reveals a huge psychological impact to say the least. So find out more and find out what you can do to make a change at the upcoming PMAC 2023 conference. The conference is titled Setting a New Health Agenda at the Nexus of Climate Change, Environment and Biodiversity. You can find out more at www.pmac2023.com. So let's go back to the interview with Omnia El Omrani.
So Omnia, you you were just talking about uh, the need to tell a better story, really, uh, so that people can have a clearer and more explicit understanding of the relationship between our lives and the and the current climate emergency. And this brings me on to the health question. Why is the relationship between climate and health so problematic for people to understand? Planetary health and personal health, why don't they get the link? One thing I heard from Dr. Maria Niera, and I really liked how she put it into words, that people, when people think about climate change, they always envision a polar bear or an ice glacier mel melting. But we need to change that to a child dying because of air pollution and the exacerbation of his asthmatic attack, which led to the first recorded death in the UK of that child. And now many mothers are losing their children because of climate change and air pollution that drives such impacts. So I see health bringing in the message of climate change closer to the people so that we can mobilize the public pressure that is needed to push for countries' commitment and implementation to the next level or to the level that we need. Um, and as health advocates, I also see that doctors and nurses and the health community itself is not yet fully aware of how climate change links to their work and they are the ones that we are expecting them to advocate for the message. That reminds me, Omnia, that when you were at medical school, uh, you personally developed a climate change curriculum, right, as part of your activism. Did you do that because you felt that medical students were not being taught enough about the link between planetary and personal health? Uh, yes, it, it was because of, A, my personal experience of not learning about climate change in my own medical curriculum, despite how it impacts our practice um, and our role as a doctor and be advocates in our own communities and trusted messengers. But now being in the envoy position, my own university, Ain Shams, and our president, who's Dr. Mahmoud Al-Mateni, invited me to work together with him and the team to create a curriculum for climate change and not just for Egyptian universities, but for African universities. And this is the kind of mobilization we need, both from deans, educators, as well as doctors, and as young professionals to be working together around that, calling for planetary health education and climate change integration into health professionals' education. I mean, that's fantastic, Omnia. I guess that only helps in creating trust, which in turn helps to integrate a new story of planetary and personal health that can be told by the medical profession. Yes, because, you know, there was a survey that was done before that asked, like, who do people trust and which professions do people trust the most? And then the ones ranked least were politicians, but the ones ranked most were number one nurses, number two doctors. So we are trusted when it comes to, you know, delivering a message, whether it's around the patient's health, but also around a global health threat that we are all facing, and especially the health of our children and adolescents and youth the most, then more people are going to listen because if they don't visualize it or if they don't experience it personally, they're not going to see the urgency around it. But as the health community, we can do that. I really like the way uh, nurses are above doctors in that list. There's something very 
reassuring about that, I think. Yeah, very true. <laughs> so, okay. So we were talking earlier about people associating climate breakdown with polar bears when actually it's themselves and their own children in the line of fire, so to speak. It would be interesting to talk about planetary health as well and personal health and community health because there is a direct link between the health of the planet and the health of the individual. Isn't that right? Yes, exactly, because also the broader concept of planetary health cuts across so many disciplines so you don't have to come from the health sector to understand or to be or to think that planetary health relates to what you do if you are a lawyer if you are an engineer if you are a scientist planetary health is part of what you do and you can integrate that and this is one thing we were also talking about in our meeting in copenhagen with unicef is that in that meeting we had young advocates starting from the age of 10 to 28 and we all had the same ambitions and the same uh, passion towards climate justice and intergenerational equity and when you see a 10 year old speaking about climate change and the work that they do whether it's climate clubs in their own schools or working together with their friends to clean up the plastic to plant trees and starting at that age with that thinking this means that when they grow up, they're not going to go into business or banking. They would go into green jobs as well as things that have a good impact on the environment and their community. So, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, this youth movement pushing for a greener society and pulling away from the kind of hyper-individualism that assumes we're not interconnected and weaved into a greater web of life. I find that uh, quite uplifting. So on that note, <laughs> let me ask you a question to ruin that nice feeling. Th there's something I would call the normalization of the extreme, where experiences and expectations that were once seen as extreme sort of morph into becoming more accepted as normal. Uh, so, if, for example, modern society brings all kinds of diseases along with it, right? Stress-related diseases, behavior disorders, addictions, and so forth. And in a way, we've learned to accept these things as just part of modern life. So how do we resist the temptation to just accept climate-related diseases as part of this, you know, new normal? Um, I think the key to that is giving people not just the problem of climate change and the depressing numbers, but giving them the solutions. What can they do on an individual level? What can they do on the level of the community? And to also know that they can play a role in the global decision-making space by going to UN climate change conferences. I understand that many people always feel frustrated or see that such negotiation processes are just slow and we don't want to be there but it's actually the opposite by being there and voicing what you see on a daily basis in terms of the effects of climate change and also presenting the solutions that you make a you're going to inspire many civil society members like yourself to do the same in their own countries because it's a global meeting that has around 30,000 people coming from around the world um, and there's also the question of how we now as, you know, citizens of today's world, we are going to look 
to our children in the future. And we don't want to tell them that we failed and we had the opportunity to work on climate change, but we really did not do anything about it. We need to change that and have our own work to share with them and empower them to do the same. And hopefully they will not be forced to do the same. And we will already have the solutions addressed and implemented. So rather than just accept uh, more extreme experiences as normal, we need to get involved in the organizations or the conferences or whatever it is that works towards a genuinely better future. Uh, one of the sub-themes in PMAC 2023 is activism on the ground about young people getting involved in exactly this way you're talking about. Uh, but one thing that worries me, I'd like to ask you about, is the level of inequality that we have today, which means that for many people, survival is really their main concern, right? How do we encourage those people in our societies who are the most affected by climate emergency in many ways, how do we encourage them to involve themselves in organizations that appear, at least on the surface, to be spaces for richer and better off people to inhabit? Yes, I think that you know, climate action and climate solutions are not just good for the future or for the planet and the global goals. It's also beneficial on a small scale. And I think the gap can be addressed by climate literacy and education. You know, how thinking about, yeah, we have an issue and a responsibility to tackle the climate crisis, but at the same time, the solutions to address climate crisis is going to be good for our health and our social economic status and circumstances. And this is what we're trying to do. Um, also thinking about how, you know, young people as well as other members of the community who have the capability to do their own work, how can they also empower others who are in lower socioeconomic status? And at the same time, in many countries, this has to be done because when you face an extreme weather event, a flood or a cyclone or a hurricane, the ones that are impacted most are the ones who have least access and least socioeconomic status. And then you see others helping them cope and adapt to that. I know that there is, for example, a youth-led organization that is now building cyclone-proof schools, and that is in the Philippines. And this shows how, you know, we're protecting the children from being impacted from cyclones. And these kind of community-level efforts are doable and can help address this gap. Wonderful. Okay, listen, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I just want to ask you a couple of questions here at the end. Uh, we all spend a lot of time in the environmental health advocacy world talking about how awful everything is and how much we have to do uh, to change it. Um, so let's look forward for a moment towards a more positive and bright future. What kind of society do you see in the future? What are we working for? Um, I think what we are working for is, you know, to have a an environmentally responsible and conscious society. Um, and this is important, you know, across all ages. And it's not just about young people who many would say bear the responsibilities of the future because it has to be a collaboration, an intergenerational collaboration between young people and the policymakers. And I already see that in many countries, which is 
the kind of the story that I believe we should be telling. Yes, we should be talking about the science and the evidence of how things are changing and our environment is deteriorating, but we should also share the stories where countries and decision-making spaces are creating meaningful opportunities and structures for young people working together hand-in-hand with different sectors, be it the environment, be it the government or the civil society. Um, So I would envision a future where we are all collaborating together for one cause and telling the same story, having the same message, also driven by the our own understanding of how urgent and how precious our environment is and the need to protect it and being innovative in the way that we do that in our own spaces and our own uh, disciplines. Brilliant. Okay. And and is there a message you'd like to, to give uh, that we haven't actually covered or, or talked about? The message would be to be persistent um, and be patient. Uh, because working in the climate space can be very challenging because you're advocating for urgent action and change, but this takes time. And that is why we are, as young people, we're, we are driving that change, but we, we, we have to be patient and not give up on that, but also protect our mental health while we're doing it. Thank you so much, Omnia, for taking the time to speak to me on The World We Want, uh, Youth Voices on Climate and Health. Thank you very much. My pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. So there you go. Thank you very much to Omnia. And yes, we humans are storytellers. Stories are the signal within the noise, and they open new doors to new possibilities. But there's a danger too, because if we don't retell our current story about our planet and our health, that story will slam the door on a safe and healthy future. Thanks for listening. We must stop playing with words and numbers, because we no longer have time. This podcast was brought to you by the Prince Mahadon Award Conference and Jonathan Foster of Foster Media, in collaboration with the Swedish Institute for Global Health Transformation, FHI360, the World Health Organization, the British Medical Journal, and USAID.